Hello, and welcome to all our listeners across the country who hear the show via our loyal affiliated stations. This is Alert, radio for people who want to change the world. I'm Ashley Titterton. And I'm Michael Welch. Today on the debut show for the new year, we'll be hearing perspectives from Clayton Thomas Muller, Judy Rebick, Matthew Brett, Sam Bahur, and Saul Landau on their expectations for the year 2012. But first, here are the alert headlines for the week of January 12, 2012. The federal government's efforts to solidify the Canadian military into our country's public consciousness continue in 2012, with commemorative events for the War of 1812 being planned for Canada Day celebrations. The feds have hired an outside consultant to help incorporate war and the military into the events at Parliament Hill. Last week, Canada's Heritage Minister also announced a Children's Canada Day poster contest to create posters on the theme 1812, The Fight for Canada. The Globe and Mail has published an open letter from Natural Resources Minister Joe Oliver in which he declares the environmental review process of pipelines and major projects to be broken. Oliver argues that environmentalists and other radical groups, quote, hijack our regulatory system to achieve their radical ideological agenda, no matter what the cost to Canadian families in lost jobs and economic growth, end quote. The minister said in an interview over the weekend that the government wants to set definitive timelines from start to finish on the regulatory process so as to reduce the effectiveness of environmental groups and other concerned citizens. The United States Secretary of Defense Leon Panetta announced Sunday that the U.S. has not ruled out a preemptive strike on Iran to prevent the development of nuclear weapons. In confirming that Iran is currently not building nuclear weapons, Panetta stressed the danger of premature offensive action in Iran. Both the U.S. and Israel have been long considering military action to prevent Iran from becoming a nuclear-armed state. Facing such threats, Reuters recently reported that Iran would soon start enriching uranium deep inside a mountain, placing their facilities out of reach of airstrikes. The American construction company Caterpillar locked out unionized workers at a London, Ontario factory last weekend. The union refused to accept a new contract developed by the employer Electromotive, a company purchased by Caterpillar last year, that slashed workers' pay in half and reduced pensions and benefits. Caterpillar has a history of labor disputes and, worse still, a track record of sacrificing workers' rights to maximize profits. The Ontario Federation of Labour has announced they will work with the Canadian Auto Workers Union, who represent the factory workers, to stop scabs from crossing the picket line. The effect of austerity measures throughout Europe is reflected in new unemployment statistics that reveal unemployment in the Eurozone rose to a new high last month. The highest levels of unemployment are in Spain at 22.9% and Greece at 18.8%. Tensions between rival tribes in South Sudan resulted in violent clashes last week, killing thousands. While the UN reports the death toll to be in the hundreds, the New York Times and Agence France Presse report the number to be closer to 3,000. The clashes occurred between the Lu Nuer, who allegedly entered the town of Pibor armed, which is home to the Merle. 
The state government has said Pibor is under full government control, but many are without homes and hospitals are understaffed and the lack of resources to treat the wounded. Those are the alert headlines for the week of January 12, 2012. Now for Around the Left for the week of January 12, 2012. On January 17th to 19th, Toronto's City Council will vote on the 2012 budget. Mayor Ford and his pals want to cut nearly $90 million in services even though the city has a surplus of at least $140 million. Toronto Stop the Cuts has been organizing in neighborhoods across the city to build resistance to this plan. On January 17th at 4.30, meet at Moss Park at Queen and Sherbourne to join OCAP, the Downtown East Committee, and others in the march to City Hall. At City Hall at 5.30 will be a final budget showdown, a rally and actions to oppose the cuts and demand an expansion of city services for all. For more information, check out www.torontostopthecuts.com or search Final Budget Showdown Toronto versus Rob Ford on Facebook to find the event page. Maybe 2011 wasn't quite 1968, but it was still a year of great social upheaval. The Greater Toronto Workers' Assembly is holding the first in what will be a new series of coffee houses to discuss where we are as a movement. The first coffee house, called Occupy Debrief, will take place on January 20th at 7 o'clock p.m. at Bayet Zatoon, 612 Markham Street in Toronto. It will feature two local activists very involved in Occupy Toronto and in building links between the Occupy movement and the labour movement. For more details, search GTWA Coffee House Occupy Debrief on Facebook to find the event page. The Ontario Federation of Labour invites you to join workers across Ontario to mobilize for a massive rally in London, Ontario on January 21st to oppose Electromotive Canada, a subsidiary of U.S. industrial giant Caterpillar Incorporated. Electromotive locked out workers at its London-based diesel train plant on New Year's Day after attempting to slash benefits and cut wages by over 50% despite billion-dollar profits earned by Caterpillar in the last year. The London Day of Action to protest this attack on decent-paying Canadian jobs will begin at 11 a.m. at Victoria Park at Wellington Street and Dufferin Avenue. The Aboriginal Women Reclaiming Our Power Project, Moon Voices, of Ghani Ganichik Inc. and the Institute for Women's and Gender Studies at the University of Winnipeg are pleased to invite you to attend Moon Voices Speak, Reclaiming Our Power, Indigenous Women's Perspectives on Education. A panel of Indigenous women students and scholars will share their own stories and perspectives. Following that, Sharing Light Snacks will offer further opportunity to connect, network, and continue the discussion. This event will take place on January 25th from 12 o'clock p.m. to 2 o'clock p.m. in Convocation Hall at the University of Winnipeg and is free and open to all. For more information, check out the Institute for Women's and Gender Studies, IWGS, on Facebook. On February 8th, from 6 o'clock p.m. to 10 o'clock p.m. in Ottawa, come to the Unlawful Access Legislation Forum, which will examine electronic surveillance laws and how they invade privacy, taking place in the amphitheater of St. Paul University at 223 Main Street. The event will feature the launch of the book, The Internet Tree, The State of Telecom Policy in Canada 3.0. A viewing of a mini-documentary on these issues called Unlawful Access and Panels and Discussions. 
For additional information on this event and a list of panelists, search Unlawful Access Legislation on Facebook to find the event page. In spite of widespread opposition, Canada's Bill C-10, the Conservative Omnibus Crime Bill, is poised to become law by March 16, 2012, instituting sweeping changes that will produce more crime and more prisoners across the country. WPIRG, the Waterloo Public Interest Research Group, invites you to join them in the 2012 School of Public Interest, which will focus on challenging criminalization, supporting prisoners, and building alternatives. The event will take place February 10th to 12th. For more details, check out WPIRG.org. was a year of radical change in Canadian politics with a new Tory majority government and an NDP opposition. To discuss these changes further, uh, we've contacted Judy Rebick, author and political activist. Hi, Judy. Welcome back to Alert. Thanks. What are your expectations for the coming year? Well, I think that on the level of formal politics, I expect it to be a pretty um, disturbing year. I think it's clear that um, the Harper the Harper government, or if we want to call them the Canadian government, I suppose we have to call them that, um, is going to uh, move very aggressively on um, tr- on on trying to get uh, opposition, trying to destroy opposition both to the pipeline in BC, but also to a whole series of pro- mining projects and. Um, forestry projects. Uh, it's it's pretty clear to me that their economic strategy is a resource-based strategy, and it's mostly Aboriginal people who are in the way right now, and they're creating this kind of um, red-baiting against the environmental movement uh, as a way of trying to discredit opposition to right now it's to the Keystone Pipeline, but it'll it'll spread to if it if it has any success to other areas where they're trying to um, support a resource industry. So that's going to be a major battle. The whole area of environmental justice, I think, is going to be a major battle. Then the second thing is um, the assault on the unions, which is happening at multiple levels. It's happening at a corporate level. I don't know about in the rest of the country, but in Ontario, in Cambridge and Sudbury, we have two multinational corporations that are trying to bust the unions in their area by offering... Um, a 50% wage cut, just a you know wage cut that unions can't possibly accept. Then we have um, you know provincial and and municipal governments that are going after the unions, and I I I, I have little doubt that that will happen at a federal level. And so uh, the labor movement's going to face a tremendous challenge as well, because if it doesn't get more militant, it's going to be um, severely it's going to face defeat. And so uh, I think what we need is a major um, initiative against the Harper government uh, from social movements and unions. And I'm hoping that'll happen this spring. That's what I think we have to look forward to. As far as the NDP, it's very hard to say because, um, you know, we don't know yet who's going to be the leader of the NDP, and that's obviously going to be fairly key for whether the NDP is going to um, propose any kind of real alternative to Harper. And I think that the creation of stronger social movements and a real frontal um, attack on, on Harper, like an Occupy Ottawa or an Occupy Parliament kind of action in the spring, I think is really necessary uh, if we're going to get the NDP to move 
uh, to be bolder in their opposition to Harper. And then the last thing is on the, on the prisons, um, which I think is the most catastrophic of all of Harper's policies. And I'm ho- I think it's clear that Quebec is going to oppose him on, um, on the prison and crime bill uh, and on implementing it. And I'm hopeful that Ontario wills. But I think we need more pressure. I think Lead Now, um, which is an online group that's been really successful in organizing pressure uh, online and actions as well, um, has been f- the only group that I know of that's really focusing on um, the, the prison bill, and I think that their pressure helped to delay the decision of the Senate to approve it, So um, the law and order bill. So I think that's a bill where you don't really have anybody who has an immediate interest in it, obviously, because the people who are going to be jailed are not organized politically. But the impact of it is just... Uh, uh, on, especially on Aboriginal and um, and uh, Black youth is really really uh, serious, and so I'm hopeful that the Ontario government will be under pressure and will also resist implementing it because after all, it's the you know the provincial governments that have to build the jails and prosecute the offenders, and they you know there's pre- there's precedence for provincial governments refusing to prosecute a, a law they don't agree with, like for example Quebec in 1970. Six refused to prosecute under the abortion law, so that precedent exists. And um, you know, perhaps Quebec, given that Harper couldn't care less about Quebec, um, will actually have the courage to uh, resist implementation of the bill. That'll, that would provoke a constitutional crisis. So I think anything we can do to make this government um, uh, shaky will be a good thing. Well, on but that I'm not, note. I'm not terribly, I have to say, I'm not terribly optimistic. I think it's going to take us another couple of years till we have strong enough movements to actually shake the government. I think their biggest worry is the Aboriginal struggle right now. Well, on that sort of somber note, we'll have to to leave it there for today. But but thank you for speaking with us. I don't like to be somber. I mean, I think that there is the emergence of a new social movement through the Occupy organizing, and I think that Aboriginal struggles are on the rise. So I think that's where the two, my two senses of optimism are. Well, thanks for sharing that with us, Judy. And uh, it'll be an interesting year for sure. Yeah. Okay. We've been speaking with Judy Rebick, author and political activist about Canadian politics in the coming year. At Awapiskat, the tar sands, the lack of running water in northern reserves, these are just a few of the major stories affecting our First Nations in 2011. How are Indigenous nations and their allies posed to face the next 12 months? Joining Alert from near Ottawa is the tar sands campaigner for the Indigenous Environmental Network and outspoken activist Clayton Thomas Muller. Welcome back to Alert, Clay. Hey, thanks for having me and hello to the listeners. Great. Now, as we enter 2012, what are the the major flashpoints coming before the Aboriginal community? Well, um, obviously, you know, there's the ongoing controversy surrounding Attawapiskat and the dozens of First Nations that are facing third world living conditions here in a so-called developed GA country that we call Canada. Um, That, alongside with the National Energy Board Joint Review Panel hearings on the Enbridge Gateway Pipeline, a pipeline uh, proposal which has stirred 
resistance from over 100 First Nations along its right-of-way, uh, a pipeline that would link uh, Alberta's tar sands to Asian oil markets. Um, you know, we're beginning the joint review panel hearings today, as a matter of fact, in Kitimat, British Columbia. Um, along that, we have the ongoing monitoring of Indigenous resistance to state oppression uh, of Indigenous rights, both in Canada and in the U.S., with WikiLeaks reporting that the U.S. was monitoring Indigenous tar sands activists, and with our own federal government, uh, the Toronto Star breaking a story on how our own federal government has been monitoring First Nations activists fighting for their fundamental uh, and constitutionally enshrined and protected human rights. Um, I think 2012 is going to be one of those interesting and, and sea change times in our history in this young country we call Canada, especially with the uh, big question marks surrounding things like the future of the Occupy movement, um, you know, the, the ongoing and ever-expanding climate justice movement. Um, what I see happening is a convergence amongst all of these you know, social movements, and an ongoing and rapidly gaining power indigenous rights movement in this country. On that point, uh, Clayton, uh, I, we, we just ha finished an interview with uh, Judy Rebick, and she indicated that uh, uh, Aboriginal resistance in particular would have been uh, a major uh, stumbling block for the Harper government. I, I trust you would uh, probably agree with that uh, conclusion? Absolutely. I mean, if you look at the comments today... Um, and, and, and in the last couple of days from, you know, federal cabinet representatives such as the Minister of uh, Natural Resources, Joe Oliver, the Prime Minister, uh, Prime Minister Harper himself, and others, um, you can see that they do everything they can to avoid providing recognition to Indigenous uh, peoples, Indigenous movements in this country. Uh, uh, without, you know, they do everything they can do without actually naming um, the fact that, you know, our communities are rights holders and not just mere stakeholders that are participating in things like uh, the National uh, Joint Review Panel hearings on the Enbridge Gateway Project or, or other, other issue areas that we're dealing with. And I think that, you know, they do this uh, quite simply because, you know, there, there's a, a shift that's happening, I think, in the consciousness of Canadians. Um, you know, the CBC is, uh, you know, airing uh, a very incredible documentary series known as Eighth Fire, which is profiling um, Indian-white relations here in Canada, contemporary Indian-white relations. And I think that, you know, we're, 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 we're at a place, a fork in the road, where we can continue as, as, as Canadians, as people living in Canada, to perpetuate the negative stereotypes of Indigenous peoples, or foster a new path, one that's rooted in reconciliation, in undoing the wrongs of the past, taking responsibility, and moving collectively into a just future. Well, Clayton, as always, it's a pleasure uh, hearing your insights, and uh, we look forward to going into 2012 and uh, appreciate uh, your help in uh, understanding these issues. Thanks for joining us uh, on Alert. Thanks so much for having me. And for more information, please visit our website, ienearth.org. Happy New Year, everybody. 
And that was Clayton Thomas Muller. He is an Aboriginal, outspoken Aboriginal activist, and he is the Tar Sands campaigner for the Indigenous Environmental Network. The Occupy movement, what some have called the American Autumn to the Arab Spring, it's proven to be a manifestation of perhaps the most dynamic popular resistance since the Vietnam era. Occupy encampments across North America have seen massive state suppression and evictions in recent weeks. What does the new year hold for this budding movement? To answer these questions, we reached Matthew Brett. Matthew Brett is a Montreal-based student and activist. He's also an organizer with Occupy Montreal and also a member of the Canadian Dimension Collective. So thank you very much for joining us, Matthew Brett. My pleasure to speak with you. Okay, could you uh, give us your thoughts on uh, where you see the Occupy movement going into 2012? Will we see some sort of a resurgence, perhaps? Right. Um, I think it's impossible to say what's going to happen with the future of the movement. Um, we can't predict these things. Um, but we can look at what's going on right now and draw some inferences. And I would say that the Occupy movement is alive and well, uh, even in the midst of the, the winter cold. And I'm almost certain that it's going to manifest itself again in, in a very strong way uh, in the new year. Do you see it uh, in manifesting itself in a, in a way? Do you mean that it's evolving somehow, uh, adapting to new circumstances? Yeah, well, I think across North America, and I'm sure globally uh, with other Occupy movements, uh, they're still alive in a lot of these cities and towns, and they're all taking different shape. Uh, here in Montreal, for example, we have Occupy allies, which have branched out to um, make links with existing organizations, and also to start working in communities around Montreal. Um, so they're very, very active, and they're making links with the student movement, with the environmental movement, you name it. Um, so I think all of this is going to start cropping up again, um, most likely in the summer. Um, that's one thing that's happening. Personally, what I would like to see is um, the adoption of the same occupied tactics uh, so occupying public spaces and so on. But I, I do think that it needs to uh, become more militant, and I think it needs to radicalize somewhat. And by that I mean uh, we need to start thinking about occupying our workspaces, um, public offices, uh, banks, uh, universities, and other public institutions, because uh, we really are in a, a pretty dark time uh, in history, and uh, particularly in North America and Europe, and uh, I think we need to start taking a more militant stance. Mm -hmm. Well, as a as an organizer, uh, you're no doubt uh, having to anticipate what uh, things that the the state can do to try to repress this movement, as as it already has been successful in evicting uh, people from occupying encampments. What? kinds of, um, what do you see as the characteristics of the state in response to um, Occupy? Will it get more repressive, or will it be, you know, how else do you see it uh, adapting going ahead? Well, I think one of the really interesting and, and very troubling things about all of this 
is uh, the Occupy movement, because it started so inclusively, a lot of young and, and old people and different faces have gotten involved in activist work. So there's lots of new faces. And what that allows for, I mean, as, as great as that is, uh, I think that's also created a real chill in uh, some segments of the activist community who are basically afraid of police infiltration. Um, it's a tactic that we know is widely used during the G20, and I think it's uh, very possible that uh, it's going to be used uh, today with the Occupy movement. So I, I would imagine police infiltration is a factor, and it's a, and it's a real shame because it causes a chill uh, in organizing and so on. But it's a reality, uh, and uh, I think it shouldn't discourage anyone. In fact, I think we should just carry on uh, business as usual. Well, on that note, uh, Matthew Brett, I, I want to thank you very much for your insights uh, going ahead. Thanks for joining us on Alert. Thank you. And that was Matthew Brett. He's a Montreal-based student and activist, organizer with Occupy Montreal, and a member of the Canadian Dimension Collective. To discuss U.S. politics in 2012, we've contacted Saul Landau, author, filmmaker, broadcaster, and a member of the CD Collective. Welcome back to Alert Radio, Saul. Well, thanks for having me again. Looking forward to 2012, what are your expectations when it comes to U.S. domestic politics, foreign policy, the U.S. economy? Well, I think the dominant theme in American politics now is the Egyptian River, denial. Um, and if I don't know if Canadians have had the pleasure of watching the Republican presidential debate, but for me, they've um, turned me into what's called an oyster. And that comes from, you know, the old woman who's in the street and she's sobbing, oi, oi, oi. And someone comes along and said, what's the matter, Grandma? Oh, I'm so thirsty, oi, she says. And he runs off and gets her a glass of water. She drinks it down. She says, oi. He says, what's the matter now? And she says, oi, was I thirsty? Well... That's me after the Republican debates. I mean, if you watch him, you think that some weirdo talent agent must have gone into an insane asylum to look for actors. And he asked the inmates, anyone want to star in a new TV series about Republican presidential aspirants? And the people who raised their hands got the parts. I mean, if you look at these debates, it's not just that they are absurd and that they are irrelevant to any of the major questions that face the country or the world. But you see a group of blatantly power-hungry individuals, all of whom support our troops, love our country, God, and anything else that will get them the votes of the foolish and the ignorant. The billionaires, of course, understand that any of these people will reduce their taxes and diminish the problems they have with their servants. But, you know, the vapidity of the discourse, you could spark anyone into despair. You know, let's take climate change. Some of them, in fact, most of them deny that it is that it exists, and some of them say it's a liberal plot. You know, and here scientists have found, you know, overwhelming evidence that uh, the whole world has been impacted, but, uh, that, and that man-made greenhouse gas, gas emissions are important, and climate changes that may, you know, bury places like Bangladesh. And you don't need liberals to do this. I mean, this is not a liberal plot. Uh, what's his name? The U.N. Secretary General Ban Ki-moon said, said as much. But What's... most of the Republican candidates just scoff at this. 
and they don't deal with why did Hurricane Katrina happen and the tsunami that devastated Japan and led to a nuclear meltdown and all the floods and the droughts and the unusually hot and the cold temperatures and the rise of the ocean. And their response to all of this is drill, baby. Moving on, what about Obama in 2012? Well, Obama should be a shoe-in in 2012 if people actually go out to vote. But I think a lot of people will, how shall I say it, be buying this new piece of candy that has been put out. It's, a, uh, it's got a big picture of Obama on it, and the name of the candy is Disappointment. <laughs> and I think this really symbolizes how people are feeling. Um, this is a man in whom many people had great hope that there would be serious change. And to be honest, he has produced some change. We got a national version of Mitt Romney's uh, Massachusetts health plan, which is not great, but it's better, a little bit better than what we had, and at least it puts the foot in the door. In other words, more can be built from it. He did get out of Iraq. Uh, He is, I think, trying to get out of Afghanistan. His economic policies have been literally dictated by the economic advisors that he appointed, the Goldman Sachs people. The Secretary of the Treasury was asleep at the switch when he was uh, at the Fed in New York and all the hanky-panky was going on with the banks. He's still Secretary of the Treasury. Uh, He appointed the former president of Harvard uh, to be his chief economic advisor. This is the man uh, who got lost the cushiest academic job in the world from misogyny and told uh, President Clinton to, uh, to basically deregulate the banks, which led to the whole fiasco, Larry Summers. Uh, his appointments have not been great. His policies have not been great. He certainly didn't want to confront. And I think I, like a lot of Americans, are going to say at the end, well, it's all going to come down to, are we going to allow one of these crazy Republicans to have a chance to be president and appoint another Clarence Thomas or Antonin Scalia or Alito to the Supreme Court and their likes to all of the other federal courts? Or are we going to go with by far the lesser of two evils? And I think this is where we're going. Um, Obama, for the next year, and and it's been now for months, will say and do nothing uh, that will affect his possibilities of winning the election. So So we can count on very little. So we've only got a couple minutes left, but we want to get your take on U.S. foreign policy. So very, very quickly, what what do you expect to see there in the next year? Well, U.S. foreign policy is amazingly rigid. That is, the empire seems to have its own rules, and it really doesn't care about the republic. You know, Ron Paul, uh, the only Republican candidate who's literally a pacifist, and wants to cut the defense budget enormously and bring all the, shut down all the U.S. bases around the world. But he also wants to destroy Social Security and Medicare, Medicaid, and all the other programs that help people. Uh, but, I mean, aside from, from him, everybody else has literally signed on to this imperial charter. And they don't really care what happens at home. So schools are closing at home, and they're still building some supersonic, super-duper multi-trillion dollar aircraft uh, that sometime in the future might uh, be able to defend us against some far-off ally. I mean, nonsense, crazy stuff. And this is because the American government is fundamentally run now by the institutionalized lobbies. There are more, by three times as many, 
lobbyists for the weapons industry than there are members of Congress. And they spend an, enor- spend an enormous amount of money. And that is what dictates the policy. And well, so the empire stays at it as it is, and we continue to have the best Congress money can buy. Saul, that's all the time we've got today, but we want to thank you for your insights, and uh, we will see how the next year unfolds, all right? Say hi to Cy. Alert has been speaking with Saul Landau, broadcaster, filmmaker, and member of the CD Collective, about U.S. politics in 2012. Two thousand eleven was a year of major reshaping and realignments of the Middle Eastern region, as Arab Spring saw one dictatorship after another being toppled through populist movements. What might we have to look forward to throughout the Middle East in two thousand twelve? To answer this question, Alert has reached Sam Bahur. Sam Bahur is a pa- Palestinian American business consultant, and uh, so thanks for joining us, Sam. Sure. So, Sam, uh, could you tell us uh, what you expect to see, um, I suppose, uh, throughout, well, starting with uh, Palestine-Israel? Sure. I mean, uh, to be honest with you, the, the, the various areas in the Middle East, the various countries, I think, are, are expecting maybe different things. Uh, I don't think there's a, a one uh, overarching expectation uh, across the board. For example, in Palestine-Israel... Uh, the conflict here has been on high intensity for a very long time. So uh, uh, uprisings or civil unrest in the region uh, affects us less than it does others because we've been in this kind of mode of uh, living for, uh, you know, like I said, a period of time. However, in the other countries, especially the surrounding areas, whether it's Syria, uh, possibly Jordan, and some of the other areas that have already seen major upheavals like Egypt and Tunis and Bahrain uh, or Libya, uh, we can see more of the same in terms of uh, the populace calling for their rights and more accountable governor, gov- uh, governments. However, having said that, I honestly believe that the entire Arab world in their thrust towards calling for their rights and more accountability from their governments, they have just started the process. And it will take a very long time before they can actually change the systems that are in place which produce these, what I would call, banana republics. Hmm. So I think for 2012, we're not going to see a significant uh, game changer but I think we're going to see an incremental continuation of what we're seeing so far, uh, which is shakeups in the regions, possibly changing of leaders, but not necessarily changing of the systems that produce those leaders. Mm. Well, at least not in 2012. What about the the roles uh, of the United States, uh, in in particular, in terms of uh, its <clears throat> interventions in the area? There have been big pronouncements from them. Uh, there's been uh, there's been a lot of talk about. Uh, the, uh, the the Syrian regime in particular. What, what what kind of a role do you see the United States playing in 2012 with regard to the Middle East? The U.S.'s role has always been troubling when you view it from a, a Middle Eastern perspective. Uh, the U.S. has always understood the Middle East in two ways. One is creating basically uh, uh, dependent uh, puppet regimes like what was in Egypt, 
uh, that serve America's interests blindly without taking in consideration their own citizens' needs and priorities. Uh, and when those governments fail, we see that the U.S. has no hesitation whatsoever to use military might uh, to secure its interests, uh, whether it's uh, economic interests or political interests. And that, for us, is very troubling. Uh, what's required is the U.S. to have a better understanding of the Middle East and stop feeling this sense of, uh, uh, need to dominate uh, what happens on the ground. Um, so in 2012, I, I fear that the U.S., as these governments collapse in the region, uh, will want to maintain the systems that are in place in hopes that they can produce a similar-like leadership in the future. And I, I fear that they will use military might to do that. And where they can't, I think they will try to uh, create uh, uh, an environment where domestically the countries are uh, in an upheaval. And we can see that a little bit already happening in terms of uh, the U.S. changing a little bit in how it's dealing with some of the Islamist p parties in the region, whereas in the past they were refusing to engage them. Now they're uh, interested in engaging them. And I think they do that to keep the domestic uh, equation in, in, in these countries like Egypt and elsewhere uh, out of balance because they understand that although this is an Islamist region that the communities for the most part are rather secular so when they create and empower uh, these Islamist political parties what they're doing is creating an imbalance that will keep them I think in the driver's seat uh, because they will have the resources to be able to to make somebody win or lose an election for example so it's very unclear what will happen, but definitely we don't see a constructive, engaging approach respecting the indigenous populations to be able to define their own development path forward. Okay, that's a very fascinating analysis, uh, Sam Bahura. I want to thank you very much for sharing it with us here at Alert. Thank you. And that was Sam Bahura, a Palestinian-American based in Ramallah. Hi, this is Mitch Pollock. This is Music is the Weapon. And this week's show is about music being a weapon. Specifically, this week's show is about people who are against capitalism writing some great songs. Last year in the struggle in Wisconsin between the government union and the government, people there began to sing a song and use it as an anthem. And the song was written by Ian Robb in Ottawa, Ontario, and his song is beginning to make its way around the world. Here is Ian Robb with They're Taking It Away. away yes they're taking it away they are taking all the good things you can hear the people say and they'll take it all tomorrow if they don't take it today from the poor and sick and helpless they are taking it away Oh, our governments elected in the democratic way Are whining at the cost of all the things they have to pay And the bully boys on Bay Street, you can hear the bastards say To hell with paying taxes, pull the safety net away Oh, they're taking it away, they're taking it away They are taking all the good things you can hear the people say 
And they'll take it all tomorrow if they don't take it today From the poor and sick and helpless they are taking it away If you're down upon your luck and need to keep the wolf at bay Just don't rely on welfare or the dole to pay your way For the rich they have decided not another cent to pay You can whistle for your supper for they've taken it away Oh, they're taking it away, they're taking it away They are taking all the good things you can hear the people say And they'll take it all tomorrow if they don't take it today From the poor and sick and helpless they are taking it away If you're native, black or Asian, if you're feminist or gay If you're just a little different from the most of us today If you want to make your point or if you want to have your say You can spit into the wind because they've taken it away Oh, they're taking it away, they're taking it away They are taking all the good things you can hear the people say And they'll take it all tomorrow if they don't take it today From the poor and sick and helpless they are taking it away If you're battered by your husband and you need a place to stay You'd best get down upon your knees and quickly learn to pray For the women's centre's phone was disconnected yesterday And there's no one left to talk to, now they've taken it away Oh, they're taking it away, they're taking it away They are taking all the good things you can hear the people say And they'll take it all tomorrow if they don't take it today From the poor and sick and helpless they are taking it away If it's ever your misfortune in a hospital to stay You'd best not be impatient for a bed on which to lay For your health ain't worth the taxes that the healthy have to pay And the beds were too expensive so they've taken them away Oh, they're taking it away, they're taking it away They are taking all the good things you can hear the people say And they'll take it all tomorrow if they don't take it today From the poor and sick and helpless they are taking it away Oh, there's those that have and those that don't and those who are okay And there's those who understand that fairness is the only way But there's those who are so comfortable they look the other way And they vote for all the villains who would take it all away Oh, they're taking it away, they're taking it away They are taking all the good things you can hear the people say And they'll take it all tomorrow if they don't take it today From the poor and sick and helpless they are taking it away So if you've health and wealth and wisdom, stop and spare a thought today. For those who don't and those who can't, there is no other way. Or we might as well give up the ghost and join the USA. For there won't be any difference when they take it all away. Oh, they're taking it away. Yes, they're taking it away. They are taking 
all the good things you can hear the people say. And they'll take it all tomorrow if they don't take it today. From the poor and sick and helpless, they are taking it away. Oh, you heard about Seattle and the WTO. Voices in the street made the whole world know. Oh, they shot us with tear gas and locked us up in jail. At the end of the day, their damn world trade dogs failed. So take it to the streets. The streets is where we win. We can vote with our feet. That's where it all begins. Oh, Dr. King told them in 1965, with Jim Crow around, you know, slavery's still alive. Oh, from the KKK and the cops, they came under attack. But President Johnson signed the Voting Rights Act. So take it to the streets, the streets where we win. We can vote with our feet, that's where it all begins. Oh, tired feet marching up the dusty San Joaquin. Migrant farm workers' union, that was the dream. Oh, a big gray boycott turned it all around. Oh, tired feet marching, knocked that big money down. So take it to the streets, the streets where we win. We can vote with our feet, that's where it all begins. From Selma to Delano and everywhere between. There's a million unknown heroes that share a common dream. They say wait till November, don't rock the vote. But our bodies are our ballots and every step of old. So take it to the streets, the streets where we win. We can vote with our feet, that's where it all begins. Now in New York and Boston, they turned up the heat. Put up the barricades and shut down the street They put freedom in jail and still call it free That's not good enough for you and that's not good enough for me Oh, they can beat us, they can guess us, they can put us in the can Joke giving up on freedom if you give in to the man Oh, it don't give a damn what the cops will condone the whole U.S. of A is our free speech zone. So take it to the streets, the streets where we win. We can vote with our feet, that's where it all begins. Oh, take it to the streets, the streets where we win. We can vote with our feet, that's where it all begins. So take it to the streets, the streets where we win. We can vote with our feet, that's where it all begins. That was Brendan Phillips, son of Utah Phillips, with Take It to the Streets. And before that, Ian Robb singing his great composition, They're Taking It Away. Both of these songs are really clear about what side they're on. And the next song is written from the perspective of miners who've lost their jobs as the pits have been closed by the government. And here is the Irish band Wolfstone with Close It Down.
15 long years on the strip mill at Raven's Craig, 25 more in the bowels of the earth, digging for fuel to fire the bosses, to turn around and tell us that we've no more wolf. Close it down, shut it, not enough profit, padlock the gates, I and send the men home. No, sir, not viable. We've become liable for the working class people whose work is all done. Long days in the shipyard, quietly waiting. Redundancy notice and holiday pay. Privatized power for fortunate people who shares in the marketplace ready to trade. Close it down, shut it, not enough profit. Padlock the gates, I and send the men home. No, sir, not viable. We've become liable for the working class people whose work is all done.
That was Wolfstone with Close It Down. And that's it for this week, folks. Three songs that are clearly anti-capitalist. Solidarity. Well, that's our show for this week. Thanks for being with us. We'll be back next week at this time. If you would like to send us a comment, write to alert at canadiandimension.com. To hear the show again or to hear any of our past shows, go to the Canadian Dimension website at canadiandimension.com and select alert. The show is also podcast on rabble.ca. The executive producer of Alert is Canadian Dimension publisher Saigonic. Technical producer is Michael Welch. Alert headlines by Ben Wood. Around the Left by Ashley Titterton. Music is the Weapon by Mitch Podolik with technical production by Andrew Valpe. I'm Ashley Titterton. And I'm Michael Welch. Alert is a production of Canadian Dimension magazine.